This is Pals with Bill Wadman. I have Matt Fisher here, my buddy who who is a barbecue pit master and all around good guy. Uh, is that a fair assessment? He's like, I'll take the first. I don't know about the second. I appreciate that accurate <laughs> title that you gave me. <laughs> Thanks for having me over, Bill. I, I was trying to figure it. out how you and I met in the first place. Do you remember? My a- recollection is you came to my restaurant to photograph me for an article and I was still in that space where I wasn't yet comfortable with people photographing me. Interesting. And, and you were pretty good about calming me down and saying this isn't going to hurt and you're not going to look like a doofus and you don't need to like <laughs> pose like every other, you know, tough guy, chef. You can I just was kinda... completely wrong. Yeah, <laughs> turned out uh, it, worst picture ever. No, it is interesting, though. Like I've, you know, I photographed. Jose Andreas and I've photographed uh, uh, Calicchio and a lot of these guys. Oh, you want this? You want that? You want this? They have three looks, right? The only ones they ever give. Oh, you want me to hold the knife like this? I'll hold the knife like that. And you get a very specific thing. But this is I mean, these people who are there as like media personalities as much as they are chefs. Yeah. And I think that's the realizing that, you know, you can play with your identity a little bit if you want to, or you don't have to be like naked all the time. It's like a, it's a, it's a thing you have to kind of discover as a quote unquote media personality. It's how do you want to, you can be what you want. And that was not an idea that I had really grasped. Did you, did you, do you feel like if, if you do have to do media stuff that you like putting on a little bit of a facade? I just like being you. I discovered that I I do best when I'm just me because I'm really a shy, like many of us, like really super shy at heart. Um, And so um, it's easier to say things that come to me naturally than trying to be calculated in any way. I'm not good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Your your father, who I met, lives in uh, lives on Staten Island. Correct. But you guys grew up here. In His, yeah, so he uh, was a lawyer, and yeah. uh, he had originally worked in a law firm started by my grandfather in downtown Brooklyn, because um, he was born and raised in in Brooklyn. And um, right before I was born, my parents moved to Staten Island when the the bridge was built, and they just started to the Verrazano Bridge is sure. first built. Um, and there was kind of this boom of Brooklynites realizing they could go there and get more space. And, and yeah, um, what was and, that like growing up in Staten Island? Um. Great in some ways because I had the benefit of a little bit of it still being slightly underdeveloped and having a lot of natural space around to kind of romp in. Um, people, um, it wasn't so urban in that there weren't people with like fishing boats and things like that. Um, there was still a real connection to to nature, sure. but we would tromp into the city and go to Broadway shows or restaurants. So I had kind of both of those worlds as uh, unlike a lot of my peers on Staten Island who were very kind of their worldview was shaped by being on Staten Island. They didn't go into Manhattan. Maybe they went to the Jersey shore, but it was still, you weren't really connected to the city if you didn't want to be. Yeah. It's really fascinating that way. Yeah. I've been out there a handful of, I mean, I've driven through it a bunch of times, but I've been out there a handful of times and going to some state park and being like, Hold on a second. I'm still in New York City in this weird park in the middle of the woods somewhere. There's Silver Lakes Park. There's Gateway Park, yeah. recreation areas, and there's 
wetlands and beach area and wooded areas and yeah (laughs) and the beautiful mountain of fresh kills um but you know and and like some weekends like i said we're we're going into the village and seeing like an off-broadway show and some was romping around drinking you know orange julius at the mall and being like a a suburb kid too i had to go out to uh trenton last week for work and we like drove by a rest stop with a Cinnabon in it. I was just like, I could totally go for a Cinnabon right now. <laughs> and we didn't stop, but I like, it's the kind of thing. There's some things you can't really get in the city that are ubiquitous everywhere else. And Orange Julius is probably one of those things. There might be one in town somewhere. Are they still around? Do they go into business? I, I, I just remember from then. I don't. You yeah. Know. <laughs> you know, it's funny. These things that are just like, oh, this was a big brand. Every single mall. Yeah. Oh, I mean. Gosh, I mean, I, I could date myself in a lot of ways. Right, talking yeah. about like chock full of nuts cafes in Brooklyn and sure. stuff like that. But, um, yeah, there were these things that were kind of the siren call of the suburbs: the smell of the Cinnabon, the smell of the, you know, fast food fries wafting over or whatever. Like there were these things, you know, on Staten Island, you'd see guys with their like hood of their Camaro up, like showing off their engine blocks to each other yeah. outside Burger King. Um, that was the thing still when you were and i felt like i was still a little bit of that like 50s still 50s 60s thing yeah (laughs) yeah but they were when you think back of it they were probably our age totally still living their teenage self my neighbor's older brother with his like wife beater t-shirt i mean it was a pretty funny time and then my school life shifted to brooklyn i went to i got accepted uh to a private school in brooklyn uh, I took oh. an, I took an admission test and a whatever IQ test and creativity test or whatever they did. And they said, yeah, you can start coming here. And it was a few blocks from my father's law. Office so you used to go with Brooklyn. him every morning and go to school? Go get up like 6 a.m., drive in the city, go to breakfast with like lawyers and judges. Weird. And then wander over to school and then sit in like a back corner of a law, a law office doing my homework. Hey, but actually it probably worked out well for your homework stuff because you had – built in time to do it and and it gave me a lot of time on my own to just kind of my i had a very like rich creative world like i was saying before that i was you know i I didn't really feel like i belonged in staten island or brooklyn um a lot of the kids i went to school with in brooklyn were really wealthy and lived in brooklyn heights sure they were part of a world I, i didn't relate to and i didn't really relate to that staten island world and I found myself much more comfortable around these adults and having like grown up conversations and hearing things from a, an adult point of view. And so I grew up kind of quickly in that way. Yeah. And it fostered this little bit of independent spirit. Um, and that was when I really started to like take my own life and like my friends and I would hop on the Staten Island ferry and wander Greenwich village and buy records and, dye our hair and bags of weed (laughs) (laughs) whatever we did we did um and it became you know i started to become a city kid in the years where new york city was not the kind of place where kids really should be running around alone no i mean around the corner from the second avenue deli buying dime bags was like not an environment i found like familiar you know but it was the it was like exciting and realizing that I finally knew what the other side of New York City was really about, and I wanted to know more about that. So when you went to college up up in New York, yeah, did that feel like you were in the middle of nowhere? It, I was, I almost didn't go to college because of that. Um, I had applied to a lot of different schools. I had gotten accepted to a lot of different schools. 
but I was going through like a difficult phase where I was like cutting school a lot and my commitment to academics was not high. And yeah. my parents' attitude was, if you're going to flunk out of school, we don't want to waste the money. I'd rather pay $2,000 than $25,000. So I went to a public school. I got my pick. I went to Binghamton and it turned out to be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, my first weekend I ran into all these kids that were just like me from all over New York state and Pennsylvania and realized, Oh, or wherever they were from Delaware, um, sure. moved here. I was like, Oh, there are these cool, interesting people from all over that were not on Staten Island. Yeah. Um, this might be really good for me. You get a mix of, mix of people from the South, people from the West coast, people from all over the place. And it, you know, it was a state school, but it didn't mean you had to be like some in state. Yeah. Or some, F up who couldn't get any other. Sure. It turned out the academics were rigorous. It was like tons of music and art and creativity everywhere I looked. And it was just this out on my own, fully free, autonomous time. And uh, I just never experienced anything like it before. I was not prepared for my, my high school. 60 kids were in my graduating class. Yeah. My freshman class of, at Binghamton was like 1,200 students or something like that. You did know? you feel like, did you get like getting lost? I thought I wouldn't. Uh, but I did. Yeah. Um, and I also, to be honest about it, it took me a long time to figure out like how to navigate. Um, you know, I'd never been responsible for like going to a bursar's office and picking courses and dropping courses and adding like the whole, how college worked thing for someone who's like a little bit shy and retires into themselves. It took me, I almost flunked out my first year. I had like a 1.6. Yeah. And went back for my sophomore year, like really fell in love with going to the library and studying and became the student I never expected to be. Made Do you think you're an list. introvert? Do you see yourself as an introvert? hundred percent. Yeah. You chose an interesting profession for somebody who's an introvert. No, especially my first restaurant where I was an executive chef, having an open kitchen where I was forced to talk to customers yeah. all day. It was a huge you think it's a learn? Do you think it's a learnable skill, or do you think that you learn to actually enjoy it? Um, both. Okay. I got better at it. Um, my because I had spent a lot of time as an introvert, and you know, I had my social world and everything. But um, I'm hugely self-deprecating by nature, and I realized quickly in college and other places as I grew older that that wasn't the most appealing part of my personality. So I tried to ameliorate that by just being a little bit more, I became incredibly curious about other people to be honest with you. And it was a way to engage and communicate without feeling like I was being made bare. I could relate with personal experience, but not have to be quite so telling about like what's really, well, you could give a little bit of yourself and sort of ask more from the other person. I became a real natural, um, Interviewer. I got a job when I graduated from college um, where I did marketing for uh, an architecture and insurance company or uh, architecture and engineering company. And they had offices all over the country and projects all over the country. And I wound up being their trade show guy. How really? And so for a natural introvert who's shy and who had never spent a ton of time on my own, like traveling the country before, 
flying to Dallas, then Tampa, then Boulder and not being home for three weeks was like a completely and doing foreign. the same shtick at each place. Yeah. Break it down, set it up, hand out brochures, talk about how many people, how many offices, what we did in sales last year. Did it feel, did it start to feel perfunctory? It was always perfunctory and I didn't do a great job of hiding. Like I'd be a guy in a business suit uh, at, at this booth in a trade show for like a correctional uh, industry convention with my Husker do t-shirt, like <laughs> bleeding through my white button down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, they knew I wasn't on board with the yeah. program. I, but you know, son of a gun after like doing it for five years, I suddenly became really savvy, really dependable. And the best part was that I was going all over the country, eating, meeting chefs, exploring food, exploring barbecue, wherever I could. And I got to, see this whole other side of American cuisine that right. I had never. So once you become obsessed with it, you like it fed your obsession. Totally. I found a way to make it fuel what my real passion was, you know, at the same time. And so I, you know, I'd sit in my cubicle and print out like hundreds of recipes and stuff like that yeah. when I was supposed to be working. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you still have any of that stuff on paper and I have in a notebook? Files and boxes and binders, <laughs> and I have so many. When you're trying to come up with something new, do you tend to go backwards or you tend to look forwards to try to find something new? Um, I do a couple of different things. Uh, I read a lot of cookbooks or just like flip through cookbooks or magazines. That's interesting. They're sticking this. They're sticking cloves in there, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that does. Yeah, or uh, oh, yeah, this is like recipe that was popular in maryland you know know, whatever king style chicken or whatever it is and now it's not or chicken is a variation on chicken and dumplings it's chicken and slicks and you're like oh you know you see chicken dumplings you don't see chicken and slicks but i wonder if you used x instead of sure sure you know um and then the wheels start grinding and maybe it's a year maybe it's the next day but like something comes from that um And so it's just a lot of just exposing yourself to things that may prompt an inspired moment. Yeah. My buddy, Bun Chem, who used to work up here at uh, at, um, Talday when it was up here, Mm -hmm. um, is now, I think, at Pearl Street, something in the the market down there in Delancey. And like his big thing is, yeah, I'm just going to take all these different crazy Asian things and throw them together and see what happens, you know, and maybe some American stuff. I'll make you know, uh, uh, hamburger dumplings, essentially, you know what I mean? With, you know, that, that people that seems like that's where food is going in a lot of ways. There's a, um, yeah, there's an explosion of creativity. I mean, there's always incredibly creative people, but right now it seems like there's just real explosion of creativity that takes elements of molecular gastronomy and deconstructionist gastronomy and are, um, like you said, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, our ability to like, have exposure to all these different ideas and ingredients and through the internet and through books and magazines. And there's so much more cross pollination of ideas and ingredients and techniques that people who have been, you know, grounded in what are now uh, classic techniques, classic recipes who are looking to be creative have even taller shoulders that they kind of stand on to do things that are are new and different. And um, there's an incredible collision. And I think the, one of the things I see in a lot of chefs younger than me is their knowledge of ingredients and their ability to pair the most unlikely things, whether it's just a presentation or a flavor combination 
is really, really inspiring. Because they were growing up while all that stuff was happening, probably. They saw like Wolfgang Puck or Jean Georges or Dale Talde or whoever it was do these incredible, you know, Zach Palaccio, incredible yep. fusion y things and said, oh, just the idea alone cracks open this incredible vault of possibility. Yep. And then I can put my personal stamp on that. And whatever comes of that is the expression of all these people. It's amazing. There weren't the kind of resources we have now. There weren't tons of barbecue videos on YouTube. Yeah. All these kind of, you know, forums and books. There was a couple of great books that I bought um, over time within like a year or two of that. that were incredible resources, smoke and spice, um, Legends of Texas Barbecue. Those are some of the first barbecue books that had recipes and explained techniques um, about fire management, talked to different types of pit masters and had kind of a range of opinions that you could choose from to cobble together yep. a style. Yep. Um, and so that experimentation was invaluable. It led me to buying a bigger smoker and trying more things and then realizing that I was cooking in the rain and the snow. And that's, you know, so much of what we do is about feeling confident in your realm and being able to, as best you can control the elements that are the variables of what you're doing. Sure. Um, and all of which gets even more difficult from a commercial point of view. A hundred percent. I mean, there, and then that, that leap from, you know, cooking in my backyard for 50 to cooking some parties and starting a catering company and then cooking for a couple of hundred and then getting hired to do, um, yeah, around, I don't know what year it was, probably 2004. Uh, someone hired me to run the pits at the big apple block party, which is a multi-day festival in New York city that gets tens of thousands of people. And it was the most food I'd ever been responsible for in my life. And all of this leads to following passion, right? I mean, sure. if you're, you're 10,000 hours, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to do, photography, sure. audio engineering, if you are genuinely pursuing a love of something, it often kind of has a snowball effect, I think. Yeah. Um, and you don't care how much time it takes. It doesn't feel like you're putting in work, yeah, right? Yeah. You're actually like, I'm so lucky I got to bust my butt all day today with these guys. That was awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I and did it, it for no money. People. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's how it worked for yeah. me is people said, I appreciate you doing it for no money. You showed your ability to stick with it. You got it done. I'm going to give you another opportunity. And, to do it for no money. Right. And a lot of no money. And people are like, oh, you're an idiot for doing it for no money. Well, you know, it depends on what you get out of it. Well, what did you plan to do with your college education in the first place? I was a writer. Uh, I had started out studying. My mom was a psychologist. My father is a lawyer. Uh, and I thought I was going to be a psychologist slash writer. I was a double major, ditch psychology, um, stuck with writing, wrote poetry, wrote short stories, started working on a novel, kind of got a historic case of writer's block sure. and had always cooked for personal fulfillment. It was sort of like my yoga. Yeah. And over the years. You think you used it as an escape too, of just like, I don't want to write or write. Oh, I got to go cook. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, 100%. I'm rolling pasta all day. I wasn't able to really get work done on yeah, my yeah, book. Yeah, sure. there was a little bit of that. Um, but I had kind of gotten the cooking bug as a kid from my dad. He was a he was a trained on a merchant marine ship as by a Cordon Bleu graduate. Really? Okay. Um, and he traveled around the world, so he was a curious guy, and he kind of brought little bits of 
his experience home. And so he was, you know, when I was a kid rolling dumplings and baking bread and this was normal making pastas. And so I was on a stool helping him from the time I was four or five. Um, so that part of my life was always present. And it wasn't until much later that I realized there may be, maybe I was following kind of the wrong, the sort of a practical brain versus like creative brain thing. Yeah. I wasn't suited for the practical brain life. You know, <laughs> now when you, when you decided you go to college, you come out and you're like, I'm going to start doing barbecue and going to be a chef. Were your parents supportive of that? Or was it like, why did we just spend 150 grand on your education? And now you want to go make ribs. They were <laughs> negative. <laughs> really? Um, it was get that. There, there were some fights there. Get that rusty, smoky, Beverly hillbilly thing out of my driveway. Uh, more, oh, God, barbecue for dinner again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot, a, years of that. Like windows slamming when I started, like, burning the kindling. Um, people disappearing. And then my mother got sick yeah. um, and was sick for a while. and in the midst of just what was a really, really difficult and confusing time, I got my first restaurant job out of the blue. Like I got a call and I got recruited by somebody who was opening a brand new restaurant in Union Square, like a like off Union Square, a big. How'd they hear from hear about you? Uh, word of mouth. You, I heard you did this thing at the block party. I sure. heard, you know, um, people say good things. I mean, it really was all of those I'll do it for free kind of karma things came back. Um, I thought it was a joke, honestly. And right before my mother passed away, I was hired to be a pit master for a 13 restaurant group. And she was so proud that I had like made this transition sure. that they had been so skeptical of and unsure of. And finally she got to see some oh, culmination of it, that. It, there's a payoff. There's a payoff. And my do dad, turned around on the dime oh yeah. really yeah the minute you're making money matt that's all right he saw my name in the new york times and was like oh my god it, it this is actually a real thing i thought you've just been for months talking about this it, this looks like it's gonna be a big deal right i was like it it, it is <laughs> it's interesting when did your mother pass away were you 2007 okay so yeah my father died in 2005 it's interesting because i was not a photographer at the time <clears throat> and sometimes i think it's like man, I've had my pictures on the covers of magazines and all this kind of stuff. And like my father knew none of that. You know what I mean? Oh. So I'm, I'm proud of you for having had that with your mother. You know what I mean? You had this, you I, had a moment before. She I passed. really appreciate that. And I, 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 I can relate to how that must feel for you because the thing that I felt was she didn't see the restaurant. Oh, you know, then it was yeah, sure. all the other things that she didn't sure. really try it. She didn't see it. And then, yeah. When I became an executive chef, I remember talking to my wife and saying, like, my mom didn't get to see me do this. This is a whole new, you know, she'd be stunned. This happens so fast. And um, there's a part of me with that just really wants to believe that they do see it, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but. You were raised Jewish. I was. You were religious or at all? At all? More the older I get. Okay. Um, but I, uh, uh, I spent a lot of decades feeling no connection to my religion. Uh, and when I realized that there's a, that people, how can I say this compactly? 
once I had the, the, the realization that people saw me as Jewish, no matter how I saw myself, it changed the way I thought about religion. Okay. Interesting. Um, it felt like something that needed to be slightly more protected and something that I had to like sort of own as a part of my identity in one way or another. And in doing so felt a certain protectiveness about it. Sure. Um, you know, I still have a whole complicated, like probably almost everyone, a complicated relationship with spirituality and organized religion, but it's what I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're working as a pit master for a, for a restaurant group. What is it like working for someone else versus having your own thing? What would I mean? Is that obviously there are good things and bad things about both of them, but, but I mean, as in as much as you can say, Working for other people, was that was that a thing that you enjoyed or was it something that you found frustrating? My first restaurant group job, uh, which was uh, about a year of training in multiple different types of restaurants and doing things while we were writing recipes and testing, doing promotion, um, was the closest thing to boot camp that I can imagine in my personal life. I mean, I was treated like a grunt um, in every way. And broken down and rebuilt at least six times in that process. And it was about the best possible training to get into. Were you offended by it at the time? It was just like, who do you think I am? I've been doing this for years. In the beginning, I mean, I remember there was an executive chef that I said, uh, you know, he was saying, I've done this and I've done that. I was like, well, I've cooked for presidents too, you know. Yeah. But the truth is I was was a, a, a bit of a peon at that point, but I knew that my food was good, which is an element you need to have to survive. Sure. You know? Um, but the not knowing where to stand, how to do things, how do I turn this oven on? I was just behind the curve in a lot of other ways. Yep. Um, and I went home crying a lot, hidden like closets and cried and punched things and cursed myself and cursed other people. And, didn't think I was going to make it. And I mean, it was rough, really rough. And it was the best year I could have ever had to get me ready for what was coming. Um, After that, you know, once you've had an opportunity, you know, from there I went on, like I said, I had the opportunity to run my own kitchen. Um, Going from that back to working for another restaurant group was weird. It was difficult I didn't necessarily always see the logic and how they did things because it just contradicted things I had done in my own space or techniques and recipes and whatever. Um, But I think it's a valuable thing to be able to um, put yourself in somebody else's kitchen and be able to execute something that's not yours too. I mean, it seems like there's a, there must be some sort of dichotomy or or some sort of difference in the people who are owners of restaurants. There are some who are doing it purely to pull profit. Yes. Where we want this big enough. We know it's only going to last for three or four years before or whatever the thing is. Right. I mean, they all these games. We're going to pull as much out of it as possible Buy cheaper cuts. Now we're, we're at the point where we need to pull some stuff out of here. Get some different meat. You're nodding. This must be a thing. I've worked for them. Okay. Yeah. Are, are there ones though who come in and say, look, we're in this for the long haul. We want this to be good. Yes, we need to make a living. But like, you know, if it starts getting too expensive, we'll talk to you. We'll try to figure something out. But like, let's try to make the best thing we can make. Yes. And I've been fortunate that I've worked for people like that who 
have had the approach of um, how do we do this the smartest? We don't know what we don't know. We come to you like it'd be like me hiring you to do a photography project and then saying. I'm going to tell you how to shoot all the pictures I want. One happens all the time. (laughs) I was going to say, you probably wouldn't want to agree to that, but, but realistically, like I'm not the one that understands photography and light and different cameras. And I would say, how, here's my vision. How do I make this a reality? Um, And a lot of people get in the restaurant world are people who just happen to have a half million dollars or whatever it is that they want to, they got an inheritance or they're, they want a place guys. where they can hang out with their college, right. their frat friends or their business friends, or is it usually family women? money or their, or their finance bros. Or is it a lot of VCs, that? Um, you know, I, I, I was in promotion for nightclubs. And so I know a lot of blah, blah you know, like whatever yeah. the connections are. Um, you know, I, I think there's a real difference between owner chefs owner operators straight up investment owners who never set foot in the business um i came from a family of people who ran their own businesses family businesses and so my mentality was always you can't trust anybody but yourself to watch the till so if you're not in it to be there physically and oversee it you're not gonna have a great outcome that's not always true but um, I think the owners who think I'll set it and forget it and I'll walk away, um, who just believe they know how everything works are probably the worst I've encountered um, yeah. because you can't allow people to, they make- want another responsibility, but they're going to blame everybody else when it doesn't go right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side, I've seen vendors who, or, uh, owners who stiffed all their vendors, couldn't get deliveries, sure. had to like buy stuff at the grocery store, you know, you see just all kinds of things in our. Yeah. 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 It's kind of so fascinating. All right. So when did you open up Fletcher's? Fletcher's opened 2012. 12. Thank you. Yeah. I just thrown out a. No, you're right. I could, I was just like, it doesn't seem like that, but yeah, 2012. Tell me about that journey a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, so I was, I had been working at a place in, in Manhattan called Rub Barbecue for about, uh, I think almost six years at that point, something like that, four or five years. And, uh, yeah, four years. And it, it, it was going through a little bit of a culture change and, uh, people that chefs that I had worked with, like my pit master, my partner in the kitchen was leaving and his wife was the manager. And I just felt uncertain, like what the new culture of this restaurant was going to be. And I quietly started looking around to see if there were any other opportunities just to have something just in case. And someone came to me, a mutual friend saying they knew someone opening a small barbecue restaurant and it was a first time restaurateur. He was from a different industry, never worked in a restaurant. And the mutual friend was concerned about prospects for success. And so sure. would you talk to this person? We had a couple of conversations. It was Bill Fletcher, who's the owner of Fletcher's. And we had a couple of conversations and um, they didn't really go poorly, but they didn't go really anywhere. Um, and then about a month later, I get a call from Bill Fletcher again saying, you know, I thought a lot about our conversation and you've made me realize there are certain things I didn't know. And I, you're right. I don't know what I don't know. And you do know things that I don't know. Um, let's meet again. Okay. And that last conversation, we really started to realize that we had a lot more in common about like what we would like to see out of a barbecue restaurant in terms of 
sustainable, humane, traceable ingredients, all the other things that were yeah. kind of the foundation of this boutique style of barbecue. I wouldn't call it artisanal, but more of a small scale. Was that a, was that a, th- was that a big thing eight years ago? Was that like, it wasn't, it wasn't a, here. you weren't on the, you weren't on the cusp of wa- you were on the cusp of a wave or. I, we were nationally on the cusp of a wave of a slightly more responsible. I mean, it's protein heavy. There are environmental concerns. There's a bunch of like political, socio-political things sure. that are at issue in restaurants in general. And um, the Brooklyn made thing was a little bit like starting to blow up. Um, but I think it was more uh, a, a sense of we as two guys who love barbecue, love food, want to do this thing that's more humble in its intent. We're small scale. We want to appeal to our neighborhood. We're not looking to be a, a massive destination, but we want to be a little bit creative and new, but not a regional style because we're both Northeasterners and we just want to kind of have this love of barbecue show in this little joint. Sure. And that kind of became the germ of what we did. And um, he gave me the freedom to put specials on the menu and being someone who, you know, enjoys a lot of different types of cuisine available in the city. I started to dabble with the things that I thought would complement barbecue from Chinatown or from Curry Hill or from different parts of the city, making pizzas in the fire, um, just playing, having fun and having, we built the kind of small regular clientele that we knew by name um, and had a relationship with. And as a chef, that's a fantastic opportunity to kind of, somebody said, have you thought about doing this? And I said, well, if you come back next Saturday, you can try it. Sure. And that's inspiring. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Just- yeah. And down Third Avenue there in Gowanus, like, was that ended up being a good move location-wise? It was a mixed bag. I think in, as far as the kind of, we uh, were a year or two over the, before the kind of excitement about Gowanus really took hold. Yeah. And people realized, oh, this artist community. I mean, if the people who are listening don't know what Gowanus is, it's a small community adjacent to Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is um, a a real family, young family mostly, neighborhood near Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Um, And there's just a lot of restaurants and cafes and boutiques. But it's funny because, I mean, traditionally it was a very industrial area based on the canal, sure. Yeah. So we're just a – Gowanus is just a few blocks away in a slightly more industrial and rundown, slightly remote neighborhood and turns out there's just tons of artist studios and creative people doing music and post-production for film and sure a lot of these things that are hidden behind anonymous facades started sure. to emerge as a cool destination area any event um what it did do was made it much more important to connect to the local community because we don't have as much foot traffic and we don't have as many destination people and parking is hard. Um, And it's one of those neighborhoods in New York that probably will continue to slowly grow and evolve and become more economically viable, but it's still a little bit sleepy by New York city standards. So gave us a chance to kind of grow up uh, without a ton of crushing traffic and make mistakes and not, suffer too badly, but it also meant that we had to be more aggressive in growing the the brand and how we marketed it to make sure that we 
let people know that we were still there. That, sure, sure. You know, and you ended up opening a, a space downtown too. We had a couple opportunities very quick. We were lucky. We got good press. We got, like I said, a loyal following. Wait, well, tell me about, talk about press with me because it feels like in the restaurant world, like my buddy Clay Williams is a photographer, right? Like in, in he's a big food photographer. That's his thing. Ultra um, Clay. Yeah. And, you know, like he's deep in that side. Like I am not a foodie, which may offend you but like you know what i mean like I, there, there are people though who like are thinking about the new restaurants that are opening i mean food blogs and food culture and online stuff i mean that feels like it is if you don't get written up in the right thing or the right person writes something about you you could live or die based upon that kind of stuff is that not true is that true or it's completely true um and how do you play it do you hire pr people do you is it do you know the right people to call somebody to say they've got a space this week for an article about whatever do you want to i think it happens a lot of ways i mean uh for us it was somewhat organic we had a pr company in the very beginning that i had worked with a little bit before that we couldn't really afford and they had they were capable of doing things for us that if we were probably a different type of restaurant, meaning uh, national publications, travel publications, things where business people would read it and take clients there for dinner, that kind of market, which is valuable depending on what kind of restaurant you are. But for us, wasn't really practical. Um, I think I, because I had done a food blog for a couple of years uh, before I got into the industry um, and just had sort of, because I was curious, befriended a lot of people. And again, having volunteered to help with events, met some food writers at the right time in my life that were willing to at least come and give us a look when we opened. And we were lucky that we did some things that got a good reaction. Um, I think a lot of restaurants suffer from just not having the money to hire publicity, publicity firms and um, may have come into it from a different industry and don't have those connections or resources. Yeah. Um, there are those guys that we were talking about earlier who are super wealthy sure. and super plugged in and they have a little bit of a built in machine around them, if you will, yeah. that generates. Friend Tony is the editor of this magazine and they could, yeah. I know the people from page six, they're on speed dial. Sure. That, I mean, that's a whole different realm than I've ever been in, you know? But that's part of the game at a certain level. It's for some people, it's all the game. Yeah. Um, and for some people, it, uh, I mean, I've seen restaurants that got like incredible crushes of attention and couldn't handle it and w- went under. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because you get too much too soon and your quality suffers or, or yeah. whatever happens. And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of dual edged swords about all of it. Um, but, you know, by the same token, a bad review on a place like, um, I don't know. Grub Street could sure. could probably hurt a place that where that's one of the three articles they got when they opened. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that, just a quick aside before we get back to the the uh, what about like Yelp and those things, like reviews on those things. Does that hurt help? Now they want you to pay for it. That seems like it's a whole racket in itself. I have to be careful about what I say Fair right enough. now. Okay, I'll, no. I'll step back. No, no, not at all. It's at. Uh, I have strong, strong feelings about that. Um, The first, so we opened our restaurant and one of the first Yelp reviews I saw. And at that point I was like neurotic and anything that somebody wrote, I was reading 
everything, you know, Foursquare, Google review. Like I was on it and I read every Yelp review, but the very first one said um, something. I can't remember verbatim, but it was about this. It was uh, after going to Fletcher's, I'm disappointed that Matt Fisher was ever born. Something (laughs) to that effect. Use my name. Wow. And the punchline was like, they were sorry that my parents had birthed me. Because their experience was so bad. Because their brisket sandwich was, I don't know, smaller than they had hoped it would be. I have no idea what their gripe was. They they merely made it super hurtful and personal. That's that's what I took away. Um, And I spent a lot of months reading those reviews and being up at like 2 o'clock in the morning and going, we don't even serve, you know, waffles or whatever, you know. And then one day I just. And your wife is just like, Matt, relax. There's nothing you can do about it. It was hard. Part of the job. Really hard for her, especially don't read it. Don't there's that's, you know, how do you know they're, they don't work for another barbecue restaurant. You don't. Right. right? So I, I literally turned it all off and talked to a bunch of other chefs that I knew, which is, I would, for anybody out there that listens to this, that is a cook that, and I mean this sincerely where you feel it's a lonely job. Not too many understand people we're not in the industry. Understand what you do for a living. Your family and friends may not talk to other cooks, talk to other chefs. Your experience is not unique and they'll help you gain perspective. A little um, bit of a 12 step kind of thing going on. And the most important thing is that you put out food that you're proud of. Yep. Um, if you taste it and you love it and you would give it to your mom or your best friend or your spouse and the customer says something mean or nasty, or you see it on Yelp, that's them. If you feel good about what you did, your effort, and you're committed to like putting out good food, treating people well, it doesn't matter what someone says on the internet about you. It really doesn't. You can't do a darn thing about it. Don't read it. Don't care about it. Go in, do your thing, do your job, put out good food. Don't worry about what's getting written anywhere. Ever. Yeah. Ever. It's a difficult thing to do. Nearly impossible, but I mean that sincerely. Like I stop looking, like I'll listen to this because it's something it's fun and sure. I'm glad you invited me to do it. And it's not, but did I, you, but did your psychology improve after kind of understand? Okay. I'm a different, totally different. Are there times when you fall back into that? Like, like you fall off the wagon as it were? Yeah. Oh, I'm human. I, I'm fallible. I mean, I get sucked in. Um, even it manifests in politics it manifests in all kinds of things. And social media does that to us. But like, I think, but uh, I focus on my good friends and my good family. I really, and I mean that like, it sounds corny or hackneyed, but we give so much of ourselves to our professions and physically, emotionally, time-wise, whatever, um, that you're cheating yourself by like ruminating on that crap outside of, the job when you're on the weekend with your kid or your family or your pet or whatever, remember that that's the thing that matters in your life. I mean, you need the other thing to pay the rent and it's your art maybe, but it's not your whole life. That's sure. no one's dying on the operating table. If your burger is not a perfectly mead rare, like right, right, right. You'll yeah, refire exactly. it. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You got to get perspective. So when you, so when you have the opportunities to sort of expand into these spaces, so how did that work? Um, we, and is that something you want to do? Or is that like a whole, uh, <laughs> almost like a Homer-esque odyssey of the process of doing that and dealing with the delays of things and dealing with corporate stuff and dealing with other people and all the rest of it? Yes. All that, um, <laughs> 
we got a couple of opportunities. One immediately when we opened that was in Manhattan and it was right near Chelsea market. And it's actually the site that was supposedly, unfortunately going to be the Bourdain market. Um, But when we were there, it was like bare walls and dripping puddles. And it was, it was pretty stuff falling from the ceiling we were in a shipping container and there was like three other vendors there. And my, when we got the offer, I thought, Oh, it's Manhattan. It's Chelsea market. It's the West side. There's tons of people. It's, it's going to get press. It's big money behind it. It was a disaster. Like we staffing, it cost us bringing product over there. Cost, you know, like just couldn't store anything. They're cooking everything here, bringing it there. Couldn't cook anything there. And so the reason I brought that up was to say like, you know, ultimately we got other offers that were much more well-suited to what we were doing, but we were in that phase of expansion, growth, more revenue, more, it's an opportunity. Who knows when another one will come along. It's Manhattan. It's not Brooklyn. It's, and you kind of make these calculations that you're almost convincing yourself an opportunity is better than it is. Sure. And we all do it. Right. And so having made that first mistake and it wasn't super costly, but it was educational. We went on to find other people who came to us, heard about that experience and said, we're doing it differently. Yeah. And you can get in on a smaller scale and you can do it your way. And, but yeah, there were, you know, this guy also serves things on a potato roll. So would you be willing to use different bread? Cause you know, there's yeah, 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 all yeah. those other things, like you said, to navigate, but um, they're different now because there are so many of those, there's different like points of entry cost wise. And you sure. can find one that's better suited to you. If you're a little bit more calm and savvy about what you're doing. Do you think that those things are a, a temporary situation? You think that's like, that's what's in now are these food markets. They're all over Manhattan, right? I mean, there's a, there's a corner bistro one on 47th and ninth or wherever the hell it is right over there. And it's like, wait, and you look in and it looks kind of like the corner bistro and you can get a corner bistro burger. Theoretically, I haven't been in there, but you know what I mean? There's that, there's that kind of thing, which feels kitschy and weird. Yeah. And it feels like the kind of thing where 15 years from now, we're all going to look back and go, remember when they threw a bunch of restaurants into a space together and that was like a thing and there was no cash. It was only for the gram. You couldn't actually eat anything. You could just take a picture Kinda, of it. Right. Doesn't it kind of feel like that a little? It I mean, is. It is that a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think there's going to be a shaking out. I mean, like barbecue <laughs> restaurants, I think when things become a trend, it gets like a little silly, like more yeah. open up. And then it, the um, windows down eventually. The field windows down. I, I, I think that there is a future for that type of, thing though for sure um i just think it's a natural kind of evolution of society i mean if you look in parts of asia where they have like vending machine restaurants or restaurants where you order before long before we did at a kiosk and a window just opens and your bowl of ramen is shoved out you don't see another person i think there's an digital auto mat yeah and i think there's an element of, of that that like certain people are just drawn to the convenience and the sort of impersonality of it and so as new developments centralize with uh, you know their own grocery stores and their own drug stores and all these developments with all these built-in amenities i think what my guess is that these types of food halls will be tailored to those communities and the restaurants will just be these sort of manufactured neighborhood destinations yeah town town square yeah 
sometimes I think about the people who make recipes from like the 18th century yeah. and the, like some pheasant pie or whatever it is. And people eat and they go, this is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And then you think, I wonder if 200 years from now, people are going to look back at what we eat now and think, how could they possibly have ever eaten this monstrosity of brisket or whatever? You know, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like all these things you and I take for granted at some level. They put American cheese on a bigger patty? What yeah, heathens? Yeah. All right, I have one last barbecue question. I mean, ketchup-based sauces versus vinegar-based sauces, is that a continuum or is it polarized? Uh, it is polarized to a degree in North Carolina, I would say, uh, as far as like they're very protect since largely those traditions are, are, are most, um, associated there. Um, but the truth is, is that there is even in North Carolina, a tradition where they're married. Um, and and so you'll have like these, what they call like a Piemontese sauce versus, a Lexington style and one's austere and one has a little bit of tomato in it. And I like both of them. Um, and it makes me kind of a little bit of a, I, I like to be a barbecue polyglot. I've had, I've had a really weird thing. I'm going to get a little personal for a second. I've had a weird thing that's happened to me lately. I always enjoyed barbecue. There was a five or six year period there where like, I really enjoyed barbecue. It was like, Oh, if we're going out for something special, let's go get some good barbecue, you know? And I kind of like the Texas sausage thing that like, uh, you know, that Hill Country does, you know, those sausages and whatever. Yep. Me too. I can't eat it anymore. I get sick when I eat barbecue, not sick, sick, but like I feel ill, meat sweats, all of that kind of stuff now when I eat barbecue. And I don't know if something's happened to me in my constitution, if I don't eat it enough, if I eat it too much, right? <laughs> like some sort of combination, whether it's You've the lost sauce, your immunity, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it the sauce? Is it the whatever? You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it again, like I love barbecue. So it's a weird thing to me, but the last few times I go hours later, I don't feel great. And it, it, I, I think it's me, not barbecue. You know what I'm saying? I, uh, yeah. So I, I've had that experience. Um, there was a restaurant I won't name me and my friends joke about it that, that we all used to go to and, you know, we'd eat there and then like, it would be like the, the mad scramble at some point to find relief yeah. afterwards. And, uh, my hunch, I mean, a lot of people, and this isn't in any way meant like as a, as a boast or a pat on the back, but like, People would say to me, I can come to your restaurant and I can eat a fair amount and I don't have that icky feeling afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's that um, my gut, to be honest with you, I'll just cut right to it. I think people are generally cooking and serving fattier types of oh, barbecue. Oh, you think it's the fat content. Um, and I think you're eating almost the same amount or slightly more, but you're getting that much more richness. And the yeah. older we get, I think our ability to tolerate that kind of rich food becomes yeah. a little bit less. Sure. That's my personal diagnosis. Um, I don't need a ton of it anymore either. And the scale of what I can eat has shrunk considerably. Like yeah. my expectation of what I will consume rarely matches reality at this point. It's funny. <laughs> I have a bunch of friends of mine, uh, somebody was in town. They really wanted to go over to Dino barbecue. So we all went over there and, and I like a lot of their stuff. I generally eat their like chicken sandwiches stuff, which is not really barbecue, but like it's safer for me to eat. I even had a couple of chicken, just a couple of barbecue chicken wings. 
later than I just didn't feel great. It's really interesting. It's like I barely had anything. I had some cornbread. I had a couple of bites of nachos. I had two chicken wings. And I felt crappy later. And I was like, I didn't even eat anything. That sucks. I'm it's sorry. not like I ate like two pounds of brisket or something right, like yeah. that. Give me all the fatty fat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Give me the ends. You know, <laughs> right. like I didn't ask for any of that. And it's just, and I wonder if I'm just getting old. And I, I hate to say it because you're still super young, but like there is an element of that. Like I just eat stuff. Your body like, just changes. Like that was, Ooh, I'm feeling it. You know, yeah. I used to like, I could eat like two double shack burgers and a cheese fry in a setting and just be like more. <laughs> now I eat like one burger and fry and I'm just like, Oh, I'm done. I'm like, It's fascinating. Yeah. Do you think barbecue is a young man's game? <laughs> Not cooking it, but I think eating a lot of it might be. Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 if I, if I said, <laughs> all right, here's a round trip ticket to anywhere in the country to go eat barbecue. Where do you, where do you want to go? Wow, that is so exciting just to think about. Uh, <laughs> sincerely, is I would probably go to Texas. Yeah, uh, I go to Lockhart or something. I Lackeys. Would, <laughs> I'd probably, you know, I've hit a lot of the hill country places that I wanted to in the past, um, but they have a bunch of restaurants that have opened up since I was there, and, yeah. and maybe not Franklin's. I would. Is that probably, the place downtown that everyone gushes about? The, which the, isn't that old. It's not that old, but the, their line is just, you know, impenetrable at most times. But I think that there are places nearby that are also really awesome that aren't quite as well known that I'd like to. Yeah, but it's uh, funny, like a county line and all those places that have right. been there forever. Yeah. Well, and what's the other big place that's there? That you, There's Salt Lake and Rudy's. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All those places that have been there for 50 years. And then Franklin's comes in 10 years ago and suddenly becomes this giant thing. The new dog. But, you know, I mean, Kreitz Market and Lockhart still draws like 1,200 people on That's where Hill Saturday Country to- gets their their sausages yeah. from, right? Yeah. Um, it, they kind of emulated Kreitz in the in the build of Hill Country. That's I've the- been in there in the summertime and going into the room to buy meat. It's 120 degrees. Oh, yeah. These guys are in there for – the guys and gals are in there for – hours serving meat at 120 degrees in the room i stood next to the pit and i was like why is my leg so hot why is my leg so hot and i looked down and it was a roaring fire like three feet away from me yeah. you know like i love that i mean that's the you know going back to where we started this conversation about being like analog digital sure. right like smoker technology has become more akin to like you know a smoker is more of like a daw than it is like the smoker i grew up working on you know yeah. it's, it's got a it's thermostat with, it's got with digital stuff on it right and it's got like woo technology it's, it's not literally know? a pit in the ground that you stick a pig on and you like add more wood if you want to make it hotter like yeah <laughs> that's yeah. my level of smarts um but you know i really for me that's uh it's like a yoga retreat. Like I said, it was like yoga or, or meditation or whatever, but like going to those places, those shrines, walking in back, seeing their like pile of wood aging that they cook with and just being, smelling the smoke, absorbing the smoke in your, in your clothes. And how much and, cheaper it is down there. Man. Cause the beef is right there. And the culture, just that whole very relaxed kind of sure give me a cup of slaw i'll sit I for mean, an hour is gab half, half the price for say brisket right in some places i mean is that just that, is that is that cost of rent and everything and cost of the meat yeah i mean but franklin's uh, barbecue going back to the, it's yeah. just as expensive because that's in town and, I and it's that makes the quality that one of the reasons that distinguishes them is they cook prime brisket and that's a much more expensive sure. fattier product and it 
is part of what makes them so great, but their cost is more like what you would see in a, a major city like New York than it is some place you pull off the side of the road and the guys stand there with a trailer just kind of throwing sure. ribs around and yeah, it's $12 a rack or he's got yeah. no overhead. I mean, do dogs follow you home? They and how do you get smoke my, out of your skin? They lick my shoes a lot. Um, and I have, I'll go to the drugstore to get something and they'll be like, do you guys smell fire? Something burning. And I'm like, yeah, that's that all on me. me. That's me. I mean, did, did all of your clothes, my glasses, my hats, my clothes, it, go, it gets into plastic too, huh? My book bag, my knife roll. My <laughs> is that, is that, does that get t- exhausting after a Not while for me? You like the smell. I love it. I love it. I have little, like, I don't know, two, three inch pieces of wood in my apartment with like books of matches all over the place. And I, We'll just burn it every once in a just while. Burn wood, wave just it burn around. Wood. And I, <laughs> He's like, I need some wood here. It's like, uh, what do they call that? Like um, smell therapy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aromatherapy. Aromatherapy. Yeah, that's kind of what it, it relaxes me and centers me. And Are they particular pieces of wood from particular moments of your life? Like, oh, this is this piece of cherry I picked up from Joe Schmo down in yeah, North Carolina. Yeah, hickory from Rub. I have a yeah. little cherry that I got along. <laughs> <laughs> I went apple picking with my wife and I got some twigs, a cherry that were around there, an apple that were there. Oh my God, I think that's so funny that, that I was not incorrect. <laughs> when I went apple picking with my wife the last time when we were leaving and paying, the woman at the counter is like, boy, you sure got a lot of wood in that bag. <laughs> Not a lot of apples, but you got a lot of wood in the bag. You Did want they have a problem that? with that? Uh, they were a little curious as to why I was doing it. And when I finally said, listen, I'm going to, I am going to use it to cook with. Are you cool with this? I'll pay you for like a bag of apples. But they, they were fine. They thought it was funny ultimately. But at first they were was like. Was it all wood on the ground anyway? Yeah. Or like little twigs that I snapped off from like a tree or something. It's not doing any damage to them. It's stuff they'd have to no, clean up anyway. Cr- it was like. Helping prune, I think. You should and basically talk to them and just say, whatever you rake up at the end of the season, I'll take it. I try. Yeah. they. Do, I think a lot of them at this point now have, have deals with people who come and chip that stuff or do whatever. Um, and you have to go to a farm um, for those listeners at home. Be careful. Make sure they're not spraying chemicals on that wood. Oh, interesting. It's yeah. got to be like an organic kind of farm where they're not putting pesticides on them because you don't want to put that in your smoker. So Yeah. There's, um, I remember talking to... Who's the guy who owns Zahav down in Philly? Oh, Michael. Salmanov? Yeah, Yeah. Salmanov. I shot him for eating well years ago. And uh, by the way, watching him cook, it was was like watching, you know, Tiger Woods swing a golf club. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, he was making something. He's like, oh, well, the stovetops are all being used for prep. So I'm just going to use the bread oven while it's heating up to cook this lamb dish. And you're like, what? And he just throws it in, flips it a few times while it's cooking, goes and chops up some garlic and some peas, pulls it out, flips it in, flip, 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 puts it back in. I mean, it was like so smooth. You know what I mean? It's a wonderful. I love watching. But, but, uh, but I asked him, I said, you know, you guys make supposedly some of the best hummus around. They used to have that place in Chelsea market. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Yep. Which closed, I think. Right? Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I said, do you ever eat crappy hummus? And he goes, yeah, sometimes I'll go home and my wife will have bought some store brand, whatever it is. And she's like, he's like, it's fine. I'll get some carrots out at three in the morning and like eat some, eat some bad hummus. Do you, do you ever eat crappy, I do. You, you eat crappy barbecue? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll eat a, you know, uh, I'll eat a McRib. I'll, yeah. um, there's, uh, you know, yes. Short answer is yeah. I, 
I'm guilty of uh, being aware of what I'm putting in my body and doing it anyway. Um, yes. Like, and I know that sounds like, so what? We all are. But I mean, I eat fast food on occasion. Yeah. I mean, as someone who cooks with almost exclusively like really responsible ingredients, it's it's not something I'm proud of, but I grew up kind of a fast food, convenience food junkie. And it's- Is that stress eating, you think? Stress eating, convenience eating, emotional eating, 350%. Yep. Um, Does your weight fluctuate because of that? 350%. Yeah. And I struggle with other health issues, just from my diet in general, like other- Your doctors say, oh, you got to be careful? Yeah, I get yelled at. I mean, I, I really do get yelled at, like, by my doctor. He's just like, come on, man. You can, you can do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is just uh, moving and moderation. I mean, I still try to eat pretty well, but yeah. I- a lot of a lot of uh, guilty guilt day eating. It's, it's, it, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of uh, pit masters who are underweight. No, I mean, and you know, I definitely there's a lot of the don't trust a skinny cook philosophy in barbecue <laughs> world. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, we're not generally paragons of health. It's just the way it yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just it's I you know, it's yeah, it's not the healthiest food in the world. It's not like cooking on the line where you're sweating it out for, you know, twelve yeah. hours. You're moving pretty slow. You're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of watching and waiting. Yeah. So so what's next? Uh a couple of different things on the horizon. Uh always trying to keep projects um moving like always trying to have something going on i'm consulting right now on a restaurant in japan uh it's gonna be opening hopefully in about july um there a lot of barbecue in japan it's an american it's an izakaya um with american barbecue being served uh so a friend of mine moved over there his wife is a japanese chef and he's an american um and he is cooking traditional american barbecue and then bringing a few elements of her background and her technique to to it he does like a smoked alabama white chicken sandwich with an asian style slaw with it oh, that's on bread um that's got he's been doing it as a pop-up and it's been getting a lot of feedback um good feedback so uh that's one thing and talking to some people about some new barbecue projects and uh, working on a business plan for uh, a kind of a prepared retail food project of my own that I, I'd like to try to start up. So that's kind of a couple of different irons in the fire. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, is, is is there a is there a big seasonal thing to barbecue? There's in New yes. York at least. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think uh, the thing that people really love in the city, it turns out, with barbecue is is like an outdoor space, a beer hall thing. I think that's when we really yeah. shine. You know. In yeah. This, the pig beach or whatever down there that kind of thing where you can really go with a group and hang out and make a day of it i think that's our that's Ultimate, where like yeah. barbecue really does best in the city yeah, it mimics the kind of big barbecue hall kind of thing that they get in places like texas or um, tennessee where the weather is more mild throughout the year and you can kind of be out and experiencing it you know yeah totally it's such a weird it's such like a the the way that the world uh is going, it does feel like there's a lot more homogeneity to it all. Yeah. You know, I have real mixed feelings about that to be you can honest. get a little bit of anything anywhere. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like the great equalizer. And it's also like you started out in the beginning of this conversation talking about our places losing their unique cultural identities. And yeah. what's the, is there a balance between that? Is that inevitable? 
is evolution just a thing that, you know, New York is changing so much. You've, you've sure. seen a change in your time here. I've seen a change in my time here. Um, is there, do you fight to preserve things? What do you preserve? How do you bring the old into the new? I think in our food, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. And barbecue, like you were asking about before, will evolve. Like how we serve it, how we present it, how we cook it, the flavors that dominate it. There's going to be a constant desire for something new. Yeah. Um, and how that changes is kind of exciting. You know, it's a lot of possibility. Um, like you said, or a lot of the same thing just everywhere. And you don't need to go to Texas to get a beef rib. You can just get a Texas beef rib in every city and every state in the country. Yeah, yeah, which is better. Strange future. I'd rather have some scarcity. I like that. Yeah, where it's special. You're going to Austin, you're getting this thing you can't get otherwise. It For me, that the the getting there is, is half the... Uh, the pleasure. And if you've ever gone to the salt lick in driftwood, Texas, um, it's all about the perfect, it's about the perfect place, like grab a cooler and plan to spend like five or six hours watching the river go by and eating a couple of waves of barbecue. And you realize we can all slow down and appreciate things in their own natural habitat a little bit too. My wife has a thing for Dole Whip. Oh yes. Which they only sell at like Disney world, Disneyland and like the Dole thing out in, but now they're starting to sell at other places and Heather's not happy about it. <laughs> and I don't, I'm kind of not happy about it because it was like, no, if you want Dole Whip, you either got to go to Hawaii or you got to go to Disney world. It's like, that was it. And it was kind of nice that way. I hear you. I don't, I don't want to see a world where in and out burger is everywhere. Like yeah. I want it to, you know, I want yeah. it to be this elusive thing a little bit that not everybody has experienced without making the pilgrimage. I mean, that's. It's funny. There's that religious aspect of food. That a lot of people have too. He's just like, yeah. He's like, why do you think I do? I pray to the coals and the, and I, the wood smoke. I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that. Um, Matt, thank you for coming down. It was fun. Thank you. Really a pleasure.